According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the scriptures. Turn to Matthew 15 and Mark 7. Holding your place in two places. Matthew 15 and Mark 7. In Matthew 15, it's the first 20 verses. And in Mark 7, it's the first 23 verses. And I believe the verses as a rule are longer in Mark to begin with anyway. And uh, the fact that there's 23 of them over 20 in Matthew makes Mark the, the longer reading by, by a fair amount. There are people that have actually gone so far as to count the words in every chapter and uh, use that as part of their statistical uh, computations. Some people have way too much time on their hands. But I'm actually very thankful. There are scholars that basically live like hermits or monks and they, uh, they spend their time counting words and letters and doing all kinds of things with manuscripts. And, uh, and, and that is actually a blessing. You know, the Lord provides such people and it allows for others to enter into their labor. And that, uh, that is an amazing blessing. All right, Matthew 15. Before we begin, let's take time for silent prayer to make sure each one of us is equipped with the Holy Spirit, prepared to handle spiritual truth, shall we pray? Almighty Father, we thank you for the truth of your word and the privilege and blessing that we have this morning to assemble together. I thank you for the freedom that we have. I thank you for those who could make it today and that uh, we recognize it's a, it's a work day, but uh, Father, we just thank you that you've made it possible for us to be here. We ask for distractions to be set aside. We ask for concentration and a blessing as we study. We thank you in Christ's name. Amen. All right, this is episode number 40 in the Galilean ministry, and it's simply titled Traditions Attacked. Traditions Attacked. I'll get our slideshow up and run in here. Episode 40 in the Galilean ministry. We will restart the numbering when we conclude the Galilean ministry and when we get to the last Perean and Judean ministry. Uh, those numbers will restart back to episode one again. And then when we go through that section of the Harmony of the Gospels, we will get to the last week, the Passion Week, and uh, that has its own uh, numbering system as well. So we're working our way through the Harmony, and uh, I know you all have that, and you've been following that for the last three years. All right, but this is episode 40. Important that we recognize that it comes on the heel of the peak of his popularity, that the feeding of the 5,000 was the peak. And then the bread of life message from John chapter 6 was the disillusionment after the peak. It was kind of the letdown that, that started driving them away in droves. And we read in uh, John chapter 6 where they, they could not handle the bread of life message and they really couldn't handle it when he started talking about eating his flesh and, and drinking his blood. That really drove them uh, away in, in great numbers. And so uh, he got back down to the 12, and he said, you do not also want to go, do you? And Peter said, well, Lord, where are we going to go? <laughs> you have the words of eternal life. So it became obvious that, uh, that he was the only option there. So in the context for this, we recognize that this is the Lord's uh, peaking popularity and his absence from Jerusalem. Not only was his popularity peaking, but he uh, had failed to appear at uh, Passover in Jerusalem, the first time that we know about anyway, the first time he had ever failed to go to Jerusalem for the Passover. And we have a clue, uh, and the clue comes in John 7, 1, where this opposition was growing to the point where the, the murder uh, conspiracies were in full swing. And it says uh, in John 7, 1, After these things Jesus was walking in Galilee, for he was unwilling to walk in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. And so there is a secular, earthly reason at least, or a concept there in the earthly realm as far as why he was avoiding Judea and he was staying in the, in the Galilean region. Uh, not that he was a coward or afraid to die. He was willing to die, but only in the Father's timing and only when the 69 weeks were complete. Remember, he cannot die. He cannot, the Messiah is not to be crucified until 69 of Daniel's sevens are done. Because it's after the 69 weeks that Messiah the Prince will be cut off and have nothing. 
And so all in the perfect, uh, the Lord's perfect timing, the cross cannot happen until 33 A.D. And that's just simply counting the days from the decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem, going all the way back to Daniel chapter 9. All right, so the context for this is important. Secondarily, the setting was the observation that some of the Lord's disciples were not observing the traditional purification rituals. And we have the term both in Matthew 15 and in Mark uh, that it's some. Um, in Matthew 15, too, it says, Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? Uh, Matthew doesn't use the word some, but Mark does. That um, they had seen that some of his disciples were eating their bread with impure hands, that is, unwashed hands. And so they were not measuring up to the Pharisees' standards for holiness. I have a book in my library, I think Cherry Edwards gave it to me, somebody did, called The Pharisees' Guide to Total Holiness. And it's, uh, it's, it's, a, it's a worthwhile read, and it's, a, it's tongue-in-cheek, of course. It's designed to have some humor to it, but it's a reminder that if we're not cautious, uh, we, we plunge into Phariseeism today, and that's, that's what the nature of legalism is all about. And if we confuse our legalism with God's absolute standard of righteousness, then we're no better than the Pharisees. We are the Pharisees of our generation. So it's a good read and uh, one that I've enjoyed now for, for some time. All right, moving on to, I guess, on my slides here. Nope. There we go. Christ answered them by not answering them. He answers them by not answering them. He uh, doesn't explain why they're not living up to the Pharisees' explanation. He doesn't explain why, uh, why it was they weren't following the, the Pharisee code. He just turns the tables on them and says, why are you not living up to Mosaic law? <laughs> when it comes right down to it, what's worse, violating a human uh, tradition or violating the, the law of God? So he answered them by not answering them. He did not explain why his disciples failed to live up to the Pharisees' expectations. The Lord highlighted how the Pharisees failed to live up to God the Father's expectations, that they were actually breaking the law. All right, they were breaking the law. Now, this is new ground because we did not uh, get to this point last week. Am I correct? We did two A, B, and C last week. Okay, because we got a little sidetracked looking at the Mishnah. <laughs> and that's my fault. Uh, the Mishnah is, is the, the body of Jewish traditions by which they stipulated how everything was to be cleansed and how with closed fist you could wash this arm and then with closed fist you could wash this arm and you work from the core down to the extremities and all this elaborate ritual for how to scrub and how to... Uh, cleanse themselves and in every circumstance uh, walking in a gentile marketplace left you ritually unclean and you had to purify yourself and they had all of these laws for for purity that were the traditions of men and the lord's going to nail him on this because he's going to quote isaiah and he says you guys are fulfilling scripture and you don't even realize it you're teaching as as doctrine the principles of men and uh we'll, we'll see that here in a moment um so he doesn't even give their accusation legitimacy by answering it it's an invalid accusation to begin with it has no grounds no standing in god's court anyway so we uh spent a bit of time if you remember from the old testament though the principles for purity for ritual cleansing were basically focused on what they were focused on skin diseases sexual discharges and contact with a dead body and that was it and if, if, if you encountered one of those situations, you had to go through the process by which you could be ceremonially cleansed, by which uh, you could be restored to the fellowship of the assembly, whereby you were entering into the temple, you were partaking of the holy things, you were engaged with the priests and the Levites in spiritual acts of Levitical worship. See, far different than eating dinner, your own dinner at home, right? And the idea that you have to go through a ritual purification thing to eat your own dinner in your own home is insane. It was designed to provide for the ceremonial purity as they entered into the temple or as they entered into a, a position of fellowship with the, the priests and the Levites. Anyway, we did a lot of background on that last week and saw how it was that the Pharisees took principles and concepts that were supposed to apply to the priesthood in a, in a Levitical setting and they forced it on everybody. They forced it on the general population on a daily basis, see. 
And, and I find that interesting because it's the same exact thing that, that Rome then did in, in their own religious structure, taking something that was designed for a Old Testament priesthood and then forcing it on everybody, saying you've got to follow our rituals and support our priesthood kind of thing. All right. So let's today focus on points three and four and deal with his answer. Uh, why were they violating the law? They were failing to live up to the Lord's expectations. And I'll just read it in Matthew 15, 3 through 9. He answered and said to them, Why do you yourselves transgress the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? See, they were wrapped up in tradition from verse 2. And he says, You guys are so wrapped up in your tradition, you're violating God's commandments. So what's worse? Breaking a tradition or breaking a commandment? For God said, Honor your father and mother. And he who speaks evil of father or mother is to be put to death. But you say, whoever says to his father and mother, whatever I have, I have that would help you has been given to God. He is not to honor his father or mother. And by this, you invalidate the word of God for the sake of your traditions. They had found a means by which they could manipulate the system, by which they could claim that their wealth and their possessions and their finances and so forth were uh, korban. They were dedicated to the Lord. And because they were dedicated to the Lord, uh, they weren't eligible to be used on behalf of their elderly parents. Say, think of it as a tax shelter. Think of it as a way where they could hide their assets. Now, just because it was korban, because it was dedicated to the Lord, did that mean that they had to give it up immediately? No, they actually were still enjoying their possessions, their wealth, their assets, their resources and so forth. It was simply dedicated shall we say, earmarked. It was reserved. Uh, and so at some point, you know, we, we do intend to, uh, to hand it over to the temple. Uh, but for the moment, it's still just simply a pledge. It's a designated offering. It's, it's a commitment. And as such, uh, they sanctioned that as a get around to the uh, responsibility they had to their parents. Just so it's evil, absolutely evil to the core. The Pharisees were the living embodiment of Isaiah's message against Israel in Isaiah 29:13. He says, "You hypocrites, rightly did Isaiah prophesy of you." Isaiah 29:13, and then he quotes it in Matthew 15:8 and 9. The Pharisees were the living embodiment of Isaiah's message against Israel. This people honors me with their lips but their heart is far away from me. This is where we get the phrase lip service, right? That's not just an English idiom. That actually comes from Scripture. <laughs> it's an idiom that, is, that crosses language barriers um, where you simply you have a, a verbal uh, one face that's, that's verbally uh, very pious and devout and serving the Lord, but where's their heart? Far from me. Quite the opposite direction, serving themselves rather than serving the Lord. Their heart is far from me, but in vain do they worship me. That's the vanity, the emptiness, same term. That's the uh, uselessness of Ecclesiastes. That's what happens when you're trying to function in daily life according to human viewpoint, when you're not in the word of God, when you're not walking in the light. And then when you've made the substitution, teaching as doctrines the precepts of men. This is dangerous. God warned about taking away from his word. God warned about adding to his word. And that's exactly what they've done. They've gone into a substitutionary mode. This is identical to the concepts in Romans chapter 1, where they've exchanged the truth of God for a lie, where they've worshipped the creature rather than the creator. And here's what they've done. They've substituted their traditions for God's word. And I, I drew that fence for you last week on the, I don't have my paper up here anymore. I can redraw it again, I guess. But we, we, I drew for you the fence. Remember the fence that the Pharisees had put into effect. They said, okay, here's God's command, and this is the line right here. And if we cross that line, then we're violating the, the law. So they said, let's just build this fence over here. And that way, we'll, we'll make this the new standard. And if we don't violate this, then clearly we can't violate that. Right. So they put their own fence up here. It'd be like you have a fence with, against your neighbor's yard and uh, then you build a second fence three feet in. 
I guess you're free to do that. It's your yard. Do whatever you want to do. But if you want to have a fence of your own three feet in from your neighbor's yard, and then you can say, okay, here's the purpose. If I never cross that fence, then that means I never cross into my neighbor's yard because I never get over the second fence if I stay inside this first fence. That was the theory anyway. But let's remember that legalism is never a divine solution. It is not the solution to anything. In fact, we're even told that it has no value against fleshly indulgences because it forms its own system of carnality in the, in the legalistic spectrum, in the, in the uh, ascetic trends rather than the lascivious trends. So here they are trying to uh, put this fence up, trying to be the super holy guys, and they turn into the super legalists that are actually... Sons of perdition. They're uh, a brood of vipers. They, uh, they uh, are working for the adversary. They are of their father, the devil. And that, uh, that's going to grow more and more confrontational in uh, the course of this coming year of ministry for the Lord. So in vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the precepts of men. We want to be very careful. And to this day, we've got to be extremely careful that we don't get wrapped up in our our own traditions, our own doctrines, our own teachings, and say, oh, well, you know, Colonel Theme taught this, so it's got to be true, right? <laughs> or Ralph Braun taught it this way, or Bollinger taught it this way, or whoever. No, wait a minute, what do the Scriptures say? Go back to the Scriptures. Don't hold to a tradition of any Bible teacher. See, there's folks that, that hold up Calvin that way, or they hold up Augustine that way, and if, if the Church Fathers taught it, well, then that's got to be right, okay? Well, church Fathers also taught infant baptism. We're going to go there? <laughs> are we really going to do that? All right. The Pharisees exchanged God's commandment for man's tradition. And they were actually experts in this activity. Mark uses the term experts in Mark 7, 9. He was saying to them, you are experts at setting aside the commandment of God in order to keep your tradition. See, the ones that get really, really proficient at the fine print and the loopholes and to gimmick the system, you know what they become? They become lawyers. To this day, they're experts at the fine print and the details and the loopholes and gaming the system. That's their nature. That's their life. They breathe and eat that stuff. That's, they're the lawyers. So too in the... Uh, Scholarship study of the Mosaic Law, the lawyers of that age, the Pharisees and so forth, became experts. What, they went, what we want to have is experts in the Scriptures. <laughs> experts in the law. Experts in truth, not experts in the traditions. And what, oh, Rabbi Hillel says this, and Rabbi Shammai says that, and, and delineating the, the finer points of the nuance of the whole thing. All right? Pretty sad when it comes right down to it. Now, their practice of Korban. I'll give you a couple of vocabulary studies. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on it. But their practice of Korban violated Exodus 20.12 and Exodus 21.17. Those are the two passages that the Lord quoted when he nailed them here. The practice of Korban violated Exodus 20.12, which is children, honor your father and mother. And Exodus 21:17, where um, uh, he who speaks evil of father or mother is to be put to death. I mean, this was a capital offense. Mistreatment of your elderly parents was considered a capital offense. They didn't have the gang and hoodlum problem in ancient Israel like we have today with these guys roaming the streets and doing whatever. When an out-of-control young man was out of control, the parents had done everything possible, and the tribe or the, uh, the extended family, the clan and the tribe had done everything possible, and he was still a rebel before the Lord, they brought that young man to the, to the elders in the city gates. And he was put to death. They didn't have the problems like we have today. All right. So this is their practice of korban. I'll give you some vocabulary. It's just... We don't really translate it. We transliterate it. The Greek is Korban, 2878. And the Hebrew is Korban, 7133. <laughs> so how do you like that? Do you want to read it in English? Do you want to read it in Greek? Or do you want to read it in uh, Hebrew? It's Korban every time you look at it. What it means, though, is devoted. 
The idea that it has been devoted, it has been placed under the ban. When um, Joshua was conquering the land, I'll, I'll let you write that down. But there was a principle of Korban as they were conquering the land. The principle was if something was placed under the ban, that meant you couldn't have it. It was hands off. And it wasn't for you. It wasn't for your plunder. It was for the Lord in the sense that he had placed it under the ban. And so it was to die if it was living or was to be burned and destroyed if it was material. And entire cities would be placed under the ban. And anything that breathed, you were to stop its breathing function. In other words, it dies. Men, women, children, animals, everything. If it breathes, stop its breath. And if it's immaterial wealth, melt it down. Destroy it. There would be no plunder permitted. God was establishing a nation, and he had already endowed that nation with divine wealth from the land of their captivity, from the land of their uh, enslavement. They had plundered the wealth of Egypt. That was his funding for this new nation. They did not need the wealth of the Amorite, the Girgashite, the Hivite, the Jebusite. The, the, uh, the wickedness of the Canaanite was being ended in its totality. None of its wealth, none of its treasure, none of its art much of which was idolatrous anyway. Their currency was full of idolatry, their wealth, their jewelry, their art, everything was full of idolatry. And the Lord didn't want to see any of that to be remaining on the planet anymore. The face of it had to be destroyed. Now that seems harsh for us, doesn't it? In our 21st century American sensitivities. Isn't that pretty uh, strict, closed-minded, prejudiced? Because remember, the culture we live in today with the idolatry of multiculturalism says that every culture has value. Every belief system is, is equal and worthy of, of acceptance and tolerance and, and, and understanding and, and cooperation. And we should all just get along. All right. I think you understand my sarcasm here. There are cultures that are not worthy of praise. They're not worthy of acceptance. They're not worthy of anything except their destruction. What was praiseworthy about Nazi Germany? What was praiseworthy, I mean, there's, there's uh, of, of Stalinist Soviet Union. Praiseworthy of Mao Zedong, huh? What's praiseworthy about any of that? See, and in the plan of God... When wickedness reaches its peak, it's wiped out. Obviously, the Lord wasn't a multiculturalist or he would have been hunky-dory with Sodom and Gomorrah, right? <laughs> well, come on, it's just an alternate lifestyle. I mean, shouldn't they just be allowed to do what they're doing in Sodom and what's right for Sodom may not be right for you, but leave them alone? No. Evil is evil, and that's the nature of it. So the concept of Korban had its place in Joshua's generation, it had its place in the conquest. It was a legitimate practice when the Lord placed something under the ban. When the Lord decreed something to be under the ban, then that was his sovereignty declaring it as such, hands off. Now, they violated it occasionally. Remember uh, Achan, he plundered a little bit, kept a cup for himself in his tent, and, and that's why they lost the first battle at, at Ai, because he'd kept uh, some of the loot from, from Jericho. All right. Now, so here's something God designs, and he designs it as a protective measure. He puts it into effect so that Israel doesn't uh, start looking at this plunder, this idolatry and stuff, and start to wonder what's that all about and getting involved in this stuff. It's for their own protection. See, there's a lot of things parents prohibit for their children for their children's own protection, saying, you know, you don't even need to know what that's about. You don't need to be involved in that. You don't even know, need to know why we're saying no, we're just saying no, and it's for your good. See, later on you'll understand why we said no, and then you'll tell your kids no. All right? But now here comes the Pharisees and their religious tradition and their legalism and their system, and they say, you know what? We can utter our own Korban dedications. We can create our own system by which we can place things under the ban 
And we can create our own ban, as it were, our own devotion, as it were. And we'll say, hey, this is now devoted to God. And they're doing that themselves rather than... Now, don't get me wrong. If a, if a believer wanted to pre- provide a dedicated offering, he was free to do that. There were free will offerings. There were votive offerings in the Old Testament. And any believer who wanted to was free to do so. But by doing so, he didn't let him off the hook with his other responsibilities. Responsibilities to his wife or wives. Responsibility to his children. Responsibility to their elderly parents. Responsibility to their clan, to their tribe, to their, to their uh, civic responsibilities, their taxes, and so forth. The free will offering was designed to be over and above everything else. This Corban system was a way to divert funds from these other things. And I think it's just uh, a gimmicky system they set up that they took upon themselves the authority to utter a put to place something under the ban, which was the Lord's discretion to do in conquering of the idolatry of uh, of the nations. And, it, and I find that interesting because um, it happened again when he told when the Lord told Samuel, I mean, when the Lord told Saul to go kill Agag. Remember that? And uh, Saul's all happy because he said, oh, I obeyed the Lord. And Samuel says, really, why do I hear the bleeding of sheep? <laughs> you know, I think Samuel was a funny guy, real sarcastic guy. And, and he said, well, how come I'm hearing this? And, and so what does Saul say? Oh, 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 we just saved it for sacrifice. We saved it for the Lord. No, if it's truly Corban, then the Lord said, kill it. He doesn't want the sacrifice. He wants obedience. All right. So this was their gimmick. And the Lord wasn't buying any of it. And he says, you're violating the law. You are not honoring your father and mother. And so uh, to him who knows the right thing and does it not, to him it is sin. All right, now the last part of this under point five, I'm sorry, under point four. The Lord then used the occasion of this accusation to teach divine viewpoint regarding personal defilement. Again, he's not necessarily answering the the critic's charge so much as he's explaining what the reality is to defilement. He's not really answering why the disciples don't follow the ritual. He's just teaching the truth that, you know, what you put in your mouth doesn't leave you ceremonially impure. Your earthly food is not what makes you unclean. Never was. Even in Leviticus 11, when you're giving the dietary restriction, it wasn't that pork in itself would leave you unclean. It's that you disobeyed the law concerning pork. And your disobedience to the law put you in a state of carnality and left you ceremonially unclean. Does that make sense? That it wasn't the food item itself that somehow communicated the, uh, the unclean state. And so we read, this is now verses 14 through 23 in Mark 7, as well as Matthew 15, 10 through 20. After he called the crowd to him again, he began saying to them, listen to me, all of you, and understand. Now, after he called the crowd to him again, it's almost as if um, the Pharisees had waited until after uh, the public... Uh, ministry was complete and they pulled them aside privately in order to level their accusations. And so the Lord reconvenes the crowd, sends his disciples out, says, hey, gather the town around again. Let's have another Bible class. Late night session, huh? Extra credit. And so they regather the crowd. He called the crowd to him again, however long that takes. He sent a dozen disciples through the town and they cry out, hey, Jesus is teaching another session tonight. Come on back out to the to the lake or whatever. Come down to the boat and Anyway, wherever it was, and they send the message through the town, the whole crowd's come back together again, and he has a chance now for an encore message that evening. Listen to me, all of you, and understand. Twin imperative, we'll see that here in a moment. There is nothing outside the man which can defile him if it goes into him. It's not a mechanical process. It's not the externals that do it. It's the mental attitude. Uh, So there is nothing outside of the man which can defile him if it goes into him. But the things which proceed out of a man are 
what defile the man. Down, uh, that'll get amplified a little bit later as the disciples want a more full understanding. And he then stipulates that which proceeds, in verse 20, that which proceeds out of the man, that is what defiles the man. For from within, out of the heart of men, proceed the evil thoughts, fornications, thefts, murders, adulteries, deeds of uh, coveting and wickedness, as well as deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. All these evil things proceed from within and defile the man. In other words, it starts internally. It starts with a mental attitude. It starts with a thinking process. Again, honoring the Lord with lips, but their heart is far from me. It comes back to where is the heart? God loves the cheerful giver. Everything we do should be as a man is purposed in his heart. For God loves not the service under compulsion, but voluntarily according to your free will. All right. So where is it coming from? Where are these deeds coming from? And it's not the deeds themselves, but what was the heart that sparked those deeds? Was it a heart that's tuned to the Lord? A heart that's being transformed by his word? See, that heart doesn't do those things. But when you've gone back to the old nature again, when when you've hardened your heart to his word, when you've closed your ears to his voice, that's why this command to listen and to understand is not simply... Uh, earthly words coming from a human speaker. Clearly that's part of it, but the listening is also the conviction of the Holy Spirit that's taking place when the Word of God is implanted in your soul. Listen and understand. If, if your heart is being affected by the Word, what kind of deeds are being produced? Well, a good tree cannot produce bad fruit. But if your heart is closed to the Word and you're just listening to the voice of your sin nature, then what kind of fruit is going to be produced? Well, the bad tree cannot produce good fruit. And that's the thing. We have two trees in us now, (laughs) right? Because we have the new nature as our new nature in Christ. Some folks want to say that we don't have that old nature anymore. I'm not sure what planet they're from. Because Paul says, who will set me free from this body of death? He knows that we have this fallen nature. It's still there until the point that we depart this physical body. We'd like for it to be gone. We're supposed to consider it to be dead, but what happens when we stop considering it to be dead? We go back to obeying it again. And so we have that constant battle. Which, which tree are we going to allow to bear fruit? Because it's going to be one or the other. You cannot serve two masters. And to whichever one you present yourself to obedience, that's the one that's engaged and that's the one that's going to be bearing its fruit. And so we deal with it at this point i think it's interesting here i guess i'll stay mostly in mark the um uh, you know i think it's pretty clear in verse 15 (laughs) it's not what goes in it's what comes out that's the real issue but then uh, when he left the crowd and entered the house the disciples questioned him about the parable and he said are you still so lacking in understanding are you really that thick well actually they are were we told just two episodes ago they had a hardened heart themselves they had that fear on the, on the Sea of Galilee, and they said, oh, it's a phantasm. See, they were full of these carnal superstitions. Are you so lacking in understanding also? Do you not understand that whatever goes into the man from the outside cannot defile him? And this gets kind of crude. He says, whatever you eat goes into the stomach and then comes out, and it's eliminated. You know? It's just a biological feeding process. Don't get worked up over it. You eat it. It digests, it goes out, and you eat some more. It's called biological life. But from within, what the heart's producing, what your mind is coming up with in your carnality, that leaves you unclean. Need of confession. All right, so it spells it out in pretty blunt terms. Listen and understand. Subpoint A. Listen and understand forms the great imperative for disciples. It's our, it's our imperative today. We're disciples. Listen and understand. He that has an ear needs to hear. All right? Listen and understand. There's a fun text exercise we can do with Mark 7, 16, but I'm going to let that go for now. The, um, it still remains as an imperative for us. 
Hear and understand, Matthew 15:10. Listen and understand, Mark 7:14. The ears to hear thing from Mark 7:16 is uh, a text criticism question as you examine the manuscripts and consider what belongs and where. But he realized listening is not the same as understanding. Listening is not the same as hearing. <laughs> as any parent understands. You have children, you know they've heard you, but were they listening? And did they understand? Right? Wives understand. If you have a husband, you understand. Because you've said something six times, and you know they heard you. But were they listening? Or, you know, were the spurs on? And they kind of... <laughs> I I guarantee that husbands are not accountable for anything they might have heard while the Spurs were playing. You know? Tell me again at halftime, or tell me again when the game's over. All right? Now, when it comes to doctrine, seriously, now, when it comes to doctrine, you have to hear it, but you also have to understand it. We're told in Proverbs to acquire wisdom, and with our wisdom to acquire understanding that you have to not only take in the content but you have to by faith accept that content embrace that content humble yourself in obedience to that content and realize this is not just doctrine that i know but this is authority that i submit to that's what understanding is all about and <clears throat> we got a lot of this coming up in, in psalm 119 i'm terrified <clears throat> that uh, that it's just not going to come across. And I have to just leave it with the Holy Spirit to try to communicate it. Because uh, <laughs> that's all I can do is teach it by faith. And I, I'm convinced that that psalmist was so doctrinally mature that he had an intimate love affair with the Word of God. And the words that he uses when he describes uh, embracing and clinging and, and loving God's Word... If those were used of, of a woman instead of of a, of a, of, a, of, of doctrine, we we would blush. We would we would feel uncomfortable. We'd say, "Hmm, that didn't need to know that." You know, okay, right? That's how intimate that book is. That that, that psalm is in embracing the word and clinging to it, and and uh, how it comforts him and encourages him. It's a very uh, uh, intimate love affair with the Word of God. And that's what we need to do. We need to listen and to understand and to embrace God's Word and to realize that this, these are the commandments for our life. So listen and understand forms the great imperatives for disciples. The Pharisees, point B, the Pharisees were paranoid over ritual obedience to guarantee ceremonial cleanness. They were paranoid over ritual obedience to guarantee ceremonial cleanness. Let that sink in. Ritual obedience to guarantee ceremonial cleanness. Realize that if you're a good Catholic, what can you do? You get sprinkled as a baby. You get confirmed. You do your Mass when, when obligatory you do your easter mass your christmas mass you do your confessions you do your hail marys you do your rosary you do everything that's expected of you strict ritual obedience and according to their doctrine you're okay all the way up to extreme unction on your deathbed you let the the priest come in and you let him anoint you with the with the, the oil and uh, give you your last rites pronounce the uh do the sign of the cross and pronounce the latin uh last rites and all that you received your last unction in the extreme unction and you're in a state of grace is what they call it and you will be in the fast lane to the shortest purgatory time available for you <laughs> all right is that what it's about Ritual obedience. Protestant churches can do the same thing. Baptist churches, Bible churches can do the same thing. Maintain your accurate attendance. You give regularly. Stand up, take communion, serve as a deacon. 
You do all the external rituals in the eyes of everybody. You're a moral Christian man. Where's the reality? What is your relationship with the Word of God all about? Are you, first of all, are you regenerate by faith through Christ? Are you born again? Do you have eternal life? And having eternal life, being spiritually minded, spiritually alive, are you engaged in the Word of God? Listening and obeying. Are you a disciple bearing fruit? Because it's not about ritual obedience. It's about the reality, as Jesus describes it. Jesus described the reality of mental attitude sin for personal defilement. He says it's what, what's in your heart. That's what's going to leave you defiled. So the Pharisees were paranoid over ritual obedience to guarantee ceremonial cleanness. Jesus described the reality of mental attitude sin for personal defilement. You know, the, the bulk of these guys were ceremonially clean. And yet every time they went into the temple, they were trampling his courts. Isaiah chapter 1, who requires of you this trampling of my courts? And yet, externally, what have they done wrong? Nothing. They were, they were following the letter of every law they had. Paul said, as to the righteousness which is found in the law, he said he was blameless. A Pharisee of the Pharisees. Even by Pharisee standards, they looked at him and went, Wow. That guy can really do it. That guy can really live the law. And so uh, the contrast, I don't think it could be more, more clear. And, and like I say, we have the same thing today. We have people that are external uh, practitioners of ritual. They have all the external appearances. But where's the reality? And uh, Jesus even described, on the, they're going to they're gonna appear at the great white throne judgment saying, Lord, Lord. A long list of things where they... We're serving, thinking they were serving him and they were serving themselves. He says, depart from me, I never knew you. Because it's not about the external ritual, it's about the internal reality. All right, how are we doing? Doing well. Whoops. Let's get a couple of principles here. Behavior does not determine clean versus unclean. It's not the behavior. Because behavior is simply a reflection. Behavior does not determine clean or unclean. The behavior of eating pork wasn't the behavior that made you unclean. It was the mental attitude system of pride that rejected God's command in the first place. Behavior is a reflection of a clean versus unclean mental attitude. It comes back to the heart, to the way of thinking. See, people get confused when First John says, no one who is born of God sins. There's a passage that gets all kinds of abuse, right? But that passage is describing that the new nature that we have as sons of God, as children of God. And that passage is very true. That new nature does not produce the sin. It's not your new birth, the nature from your new birth, that produces that. It's when you have suppressed that, hardened your heart, as the dog returns to its vomit, the sow returns to the mire. And you go back to that old man. We're supposed to lay aside the old man and the deeds of the flesh and put on Christ. But the problem is, we put off Christ, we put that old man back on. We like the way that old man feels. Well, let's face it. The old clothes feel better. Don't they? I've got t-shirts and shorts that they feel great. I've worn them for 30 years. I love them. <laughs> They're a bit ratty and... Thin, they got holes in them, and it'd be kind of obscene to try to wear them in public. But boy, they're comfortable, right? Because they just they just fit. They've they've been on your body for years, and you know a lot better than the new stuff. Goodness. So, what does the old man like to do? Think of it that way. It's comfy. Yeah, we can go back to that. It feels good. We're used to it. And, to be honest, when, we, when we're struggling in the spiritual realm and we tend to give up on ourselves, we say, oh, well, I'm a failure anyway, right? Why bother trying? It's not working. Just go back to the way it was. No. Behavior does not determine clean versus unclean. Behavior is a reflection of a clean versus unclean mental attitude. Remember, David committed adultery in his heart 
long before he ever accomplished the overt activity. It's a reflection of a clean versus unclean mental attitude. If I may, give myself permission. May I? Yes, you may. Um, Ezekiel 28. And we'll see this. I stole that from Eugene Merrill, by the way, Old Testament professor from Dallas Seminary. When he wanted to go off on a rabbit trail, he'd ask himself permission. <laughs> he'd say, may I take a side trip? Yes, you may. Thank you. All right, and on he go. Ezekiel 28, because, see, here is a perfect being, created sinless, created righteous, created perfect. And uh, no human being has that description. Only Adam was created sinless and then fell into sin. We were all born into sin and then were uh, made righteous through justification and imputation. But here's a creature that was created sinless and perfect that became unrighteous. And you'll note in verse 15, you were blameless in your ways from the day you were created until unrighteousness was found in you. And this describes a perfect being created in perfection who then fell into a fallen estate. Like I say, the only human being that could describe would be Adam or Eve. Um, but obviously this is the Christ cherub. He's called a cherub. And we understand that this is actually Satan in, uh, or Hillel ben Shachar in his name prior to uh, his fall, prior to assuming the title of adversary. And we might even find out that adversary preceded the fall, that that was his angelic position in uh, that there was an adversary role, there was an advocate role, and uh, Christ, of course, is the faithful advocate, always has been, always will be. Satan was the adversary, and uh, that may have been a pre-fall role that uh, after the fall became as as uh, vicious as it is in, in the adversarial way that he continues to, to function in. But anyway, we'll save that for future studies in angelology. Um, you were the anointed, the Christ cherub who covers... And I placed you there. You were on the holy mountain of God. You walked in the midst of the stones of fire. You were blameless in your ways from the day you were created until unrighteousness was found in you. So was it deeds? Was it behavior that caused him to fall? It started internally. That's right. Look at verse 16. By the abundance of your trade, you were internally, notice internally, filled with violence and you sinned. It started internally. It started with a mental attitude, and ultimately we find it pinpointed for us. It's the mental attitude of pride, which we're told about in verse 17. Your heart was lifted up because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom by reason of your splendor. And so the very first sin in the universe was the sin of pride. We call that the granddaddy of all sins. Reading from Ezekiel 28 at the moment, Ezekiel 28:17. And so here's the original sin. And this is older than Adam's original sin. This is Satan's original sin or Hillel's original sin. And Hillel started with the internal attitude of pride that then sparked behavior. What did he do? Well, verse 18 says, by the multitude of your iniquities. So it was just, it started with one sin of pride that then exploded into the cycles of sin that are expressed overtly. In the unrighteousness of your trade, he starts to accumulate wealth by unrighteous means, and you profaned your sanctuaries. He becomes the first money changer in the first temple. And he starts, in unrighteousness of trade, he starts, he turns the house of prayer into a house of merchandise. But it wasn't the deeds that did it. It was the internal mental attitude that sparked the deed. See, it's what comes from within that defiles, not what you do. Not what you do. So therefore, I have brought fire from the midst of you. It has consumed you, and I have turned you to ashes on the earth. The dragon is no longer a glorious dragon described in those beautiful jewels of verse 13. Originally, that dragon was a glorious creature with topaz and ruby, diamond, barrel, you know, all the stones of his armor and his wings and his tail and every, this glorious dragon was a beautiful creature of light. 
shining light, Halal ben Shachar, the son of the dawn, the, the luminous one. And this dragon that, that emanated light, that reflected the light of God's glory on the brilliance of these gems was a glorious thing until uh, fire from the midst of him has consumed him and he's turned to ashes on the earth. And now he's the dragon of ashes and fire and, and the, the Leviathan, the Leviathan dragon from Job 41. All right, so that, end of my side trip, back to Mark 7. It's not behavior. It's mental attitude. We have a statement made in Matthew 15, 12, that the Pharisees were offended. Matthew 15, 12, that the Pharisees were offended. And the Lord doesn't seem to bother him at all. Right? And, and I really want to make sure that we have our own application when it comes to this, that we realize it's very important that we do not throw a stumbling block away. As far as offending other people go, uh, to a brother in Christ, we have to be very careful and love to not throw stumbling blocks out there to trip up a brother. But an unbeliever, as these Pharisees are, and not that the Lord was intentionally throwing stumbling blocks out there, but he was simply testifying to the truth. And if the truth of the gospel causes an unbeliever to stumble, that's not our fault. We're not to blame if an unbeliever is offended over gospel truth or edification truth. That's not on us. Their issue is not with us. Their issue is with the word of God. And... Um, the disciples came in Matthew 15:12 and said to him, "Do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this statement?" But he answered and said to them, "Oh well, <laughs> okay, maybe not those exact words. I'm kind of interpolating from the Greek. No, um, he answered and said, "Every plant which my heavenly Father did not plant shall be uprooted. They're not my Father's plants." Remember, the father sows wheat in the good field, but the adversary comes along and he sows tares right alongside the wheat. We've already had that parable, all right? And um, so he says, he's not one of my father's plants. It's not my business. He even goes so far in verse 14 to say, let them alone. Let them alone. I find those three words powerful. Let them alone. And I think if more believers paid attention to those little words and recognized where those words come and what context they come, they wouldn't be so wild about uh, the, the crusading that they're presently doing. People out there that are dedicated to putting an end to certain things. All right. Is that our function? Is that what we're supposed to do? And do these words, let them alone, do they mean anything at all? Since is Jesus saying them. You know, because the adversary is doing what he's doing with his minions. And the father has a schedule to put all that to an end. And until he puts that all to an end, that's his good pleasure to let us his business. It's not our business. Jesus tells his disciples, let them alone. They're blind guides of the blind. And if a blind man guides a blind man, both will fall into a pit. Let them alone. You know, there, there are a lot of things in this world that, that, that break the heart. And you say... Like to see that done away with. And it will be done away with. But we're not commanded to crusade and put an end to it. Anything. Pick your favorite cause. Let them alone. It's not our realm. So the Pharisees were offended. They heard but did not understand. Now I find that interesting too. In that command to listen and to understand. They obviously listened because that's how they were offended. I have people tell me that, well, they couldn't have listened. 
Because the natural mind cannot apprehend the things of God. And you say, wait a minute. We're being a little too loose here with 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Okay? The natural man cannot embrace the things of God, cannot welcome the things of God, cannot listen and understand the things of God and embrace the, the things of God in a welcoming sense to the edification of their soul. True. They must be spiritually appraised. But the natural man can listen to human words, can have a human comprehension of a message and be offended by it, such as happens here, or be amused by it and, and laugh at something and say, oh, well, isn't that cute? Those primitive Christians and their belief in God. See, they did hear. They did hear. They listened. But they did not understand. They did not embrace. They did not acknowledge the authority of and humble themselves under the message as it went forth. In fact, they were offended by it. So they heard but did not understand. They were not the Father's planting and they are not our responsibility to deal with. It's not our responsibility. Paul told the Corinthians, what do I have to do with judging outsiders? Remove the wicked man from among yourselves. The church deals with the church. And specifically, the local church deals with the local church. I'm not going to straighten out another believer who's under another shepherd's authority. That's, his, that's the other shepherd's issue to deal with. I need to straighten out the brothers here. And so do you. We have a responsibility one to another within this flock. But what do we have to do with judging outsiders? That's not our realm. Jesus Christ is the head of the church. He'll deal with that. There's another flock that will deal with that. And with unbelievers, with this world... Now, don't get me wrong, we will judge this world, but we're not on that throne yet. The cross has to precede the crown, and until we're crowned, we're not here to usher in the kingdom or to conquer the world. There's a mentality that underlies onward Christian soldiers, and if you're not careful with it, you can get sidetracked into a crusader mentality. And we want to be very careful about that. We're aliens and strangers. We represent a different kingdom. While this kingdom is being allowed to run its course, the Father is letting Satan run this world presently. He's the God of this age. He has the most freedom he's ever had up to now in this current dispensation, and it's about to be unrestrained even more in the tribulation. And so the idea that we're going to come along and put an end to the works of Satan, no, we're not. Christ did that tactically on the cross, but he won't do that effectively until second advent. And so I think this comes back to a lot of issues in terms of the crusaders and the transformation and the things that people are trying to do in, in uh, our culture and our world today. Let them alone. He said, let them alone. The disciples required additional explanation and the Lord patiently retaught them. He said, are you still lacking? All right, here we go. Let me explain this again. You like question and answer time. And somebody raises their hand and says, um, how, how exactly is it that I confess my sins and be restored to fellowship? All right. <laughs> kind of thought you'd have a handle on that by now, but that's all right. We'll teach it again. We'll teach First John 1 John 1.9 again. Because I think it's important. I think it's the first thing that every brand new believer needs to learn on the day they're saved. Very first thing they need to learn. How to confess your sins. How to stay in fellowship. How to get back in fellowship when you go carnal. Because trust me, a baby believer is not going to stay in fellowship for... Very long, <laughs> until he gets grounded, until he starts getting teaching that starts to change him and starts to give him longer and longer times in spirituality. I think the thing that keeps them in spirituality the longest is their own ignorance. The fact that God uh, doesn't hold them to every sin of omission and to every mental attitude sin and things, and they're, uh, it's only the sins they're aware of, of anyway that are plunging them into carnality and it uh, becomes an interesting principle at that point. And the Lord patiently teaches him. says, are you still lacking in understanding also? All right, let's go it again. And with Peter, he says, okay, I'll get a little crude with you here, Peter. <laughs> what happens to the stuff you eat? Where does it go? And then where does it go? He says, have you figured it out yet? <laughs> you see why I'm not worried about the food you're putting in your mouth? And when he put it in that kind of blunt terminology, Peter got, oh, okay, I get it now. <laughs> oh, all right. 
wonder sometimes, is that the way we should be teaching the Word of God? Should we just lay it out there where just the common guy on the street says, oh, okay, well, that, that's real then, that's, that's how it works. I think it edifies. All right, our next uh, episode is episode 41, The Short Journey to Phoenicia. And this is where he uh, actually tries to get out of town and get a little re- rest and relaxation. Finds that there's more work to do in Phoenicia. And uh, he finds a wonderful woman out there with some tremendous faith. She's a Gentile dog and she knows it, but she's going to take full advantage of the, of the Savior of the world coming to her hometown. And uh, we'll deal with that. It's a, it's a wonderful class. It's a short one, though. It's only verses uh, 21 through 28 here in Matthew 15, as well as verses 24 through 30 in Mark 7. So it's a pretty short episode, and we should uh, handle that next week just fine. Father, thank you for the truth of your word. Thank you for this time together. We praise your name in Christ Jesus' name. Amen.